Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Miles Moody. He is an incoming assistant professor in sociology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Like you said, I'm an incoming uh, assistant professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, the medical sociology department there. Um, I believe it's the only medical sociology department in the country. So it's like a utopia for people like me who study health disparities. We all have a health disparities um, research focus. Uh, so I'm you know, really looking forward to joining the faculty there. I'm actually in Birmingham right now. Uh, it looks like I'm in a hotel room it's because I am. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, you know, trying to find a new place um, and, you know, trying to make this transition from from graduate student to, you know, to professor. And you went to Morehouse College? Absolutely, yeah. Class of 2013, very, very proud Morehouse alumni. Um, I also um, am from St. Louis, Missouri. I like to, you know, shout out my hometown and, and um, you know, everyone back home. Um, and yeah, then I went to University of Memphis um, for my master's in sociology, and then uh, got my PhD at the University of Kentucky in sociology. So why don't you start telling me a little bit about what your work is on? I mean, broadly, I, I study racial disparities in health, racism in health, um, and um, I'm a mental health researcher uh, primarily, so I like to study stress, particularly uh, racism-related stress, um, or as some people call it, race-related stress. But I think that it's very important for us to be intentional about you know, the source of the stress, which is not our race, but it is racism. Um, so you might hear both uh, if, you're, if you're in that literature, but that's, that's pretty much what I study. Um, my dissertation was on um, secondhand racism or vicariously experienced racism. Um, it's, it's something that uh, I, I found uh, to be uh, unique in that there was a gap in the literature of the secondhand experiences. So like experiencing racism or discrimination through another person, whether it's someone that you're closely tied to, a loved one, a friend, uh, or just someone from your racial um, group and, and, and seeing that perhaps on the news or on social media like we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. and, and the negative impacts of those experiences. So for instance, if my, say my mother tells me she went to look for a job um, and she, you know, she, and she felt like perhaps an opportunity was denied um, because she was black. Um, so however I may feel about that, would you describe that as a, as a form of uh, secondhand racism? Absolutely, and the thing is, Racism-related stress is just like any other stress. It's just that, so for instance, we all have stress, no matter what race you're from or what group you're from. Mm -hmm. But racial and ethnic minorities, you know, such as Black folks, we have the added stress burden of stress tied to racism, you know, that mm -hmm. whites don't experience. So um, I'm saying all this to say, it operates just like any other stressor would, you know, it can, it can lead to psychological distress. It can, uh, you know, have individuals ruminating, uh, you know, constantly, which can drain, you know, physiological systems over time, um, which can lead to early health deterioration or, or, or um, weathering, as some have called it. And uh, you can absolutely experience 
uh, secondhand discrimination that can impact you uh, in a negative way, such as your mother, um, you know, uh, having her own forms of adversity and sharing that with you. One, one example that I typically highlight that a lot of people get right away is Erica Garner's story. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's actually what, um, that was actually the impetus for my dissertation. You know, mm -hmm. I, 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 the very first couple of sentences <clears throat> of my dissertation are, you know, um, in December of 2017, Erica Garner died at the age of 27 from, you know, so. From dilated cardiomyopathy after giving birth, yep. Well, yeah, so, and that's what, that's what people will um, attribute that to, but what exacerbated, you know, her conditions, right? Right. It was, it was the racism, you know, or better yet, it was the vigilance that mm -hmm. she um, experienced in trying to attain justice for her father's murder, Eric Garner, Absolutely. You know, that around the clock, you know, uh, constantly worrying, constantly thinking about it, constantly uh, having to affirm, you know, what is right, essentially, like the fact that her father was unjustly murdered, <clears throat> mm -hmm. the fact that they didn't quite get justice, you know, but I don't really like to focus on justice as much because it should have never happened in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that um, stressors uh, that are very, very extreme that way can can lead to what happened with Erica Garner, unfortunately. But uh, in our everyday life, because that's a very extreme case, in our everyday life, we have much, I won't say smaller stressors, but stressors that might eat at you um, in a less uh, extreme way. So mm -hmm. over time, it can wear your physiological systems down, but maybe not in the same amount of time, you know, that it that it did for Erica Garner. Right, right. Saying? Yeah, she spent like two, over two years trying to get uh, the police officers who um, killed her father, right, um, convicted and whatnot. Yeah, um, and, that's, and that's waking up every day with that on her mind and her heart, weighing on her every right. single day for two years. Her birthday was, what may 29th she would have turned 30 um, wow. a few days ago wow um wow. and i yeah. just turned 29 uh two days ago so yeah that that really hit home for me you know she was 27. yeah uh, yeah i was just thinking you know uh ahmaud arbery uh, would have turned 26 on may 8th i turned 27 on may 10th and that was mother's day and i kid you not i woke up like with that on my mind. I mean, I'd been thinking about it all week because, you know, it, it was online. Um, I woke up, the first thing I did that morning is I went to run my 2.23 miles times two. I mean, I, you know, as a runner, but also that specific number because he, you know, because of the online campaign. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, with that, thinking about that, I want to and, shout out Brianna Taylor as well. Today's right, her birthday. Who, oh, that's right. And yep. two days after your, um, yeah, so I've been thinking, you know, when that, when the video of Ahmaud Arbery's um, murder, you know, first appeared on social media, someone sent it to me. Um, and, the, you know, the, the text message was like, they murdered that guy. And I didn't click on the link. So I, ever since Eric Garner died at the hand of the police, I do not... I saw that video and I kind of like vowed to just not watch those anymore because I was like, very understandable. Why, why would I put myself through that stress? And I've been thinking a little bit about what potential effect that um, just kind of witnessing, um, you know, these violent killings um, 
I, I don't know like what that could have on the psyche. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, how much these videos circulate, um, you know, around social media and why, like, yeah, like the why of them circulating so much, is it because of evidence or like what, what is it about, I guess our society's need for watching these videos? Um, yeah. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think that, you know, the first, um, answer that pops up in my head, you know, just to acknowledge this, when I think about, you know, um, what Dr. King and others were trying to do with, say, for instance, Bloody Sunday, and, uh, you know, what, what Emmett Till's mother was trying to do by having the open casket, right, you know, so on and so forth, it brings awareness, you know, mm -hmm. it can, it can, it can kind of shock the world. You know, what we're seeing now, we see all of these, um, um, offhand just tragedies of police officers brutalizing protesters mm -hmm. you know that 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 we just so happen to catch because somebody just so happened to have their phone out at the time i think that that catches the eyes and the hearts of a lot of people across the world mm -hmm. so i think that that's one reason why people want to circulate them to bring awareness but at the end of the day there's a part of me that does feel like media and you know, not trying to be hotep or too deep, but but there is a sense, there is a sensationalism aspect to it as well. Mm -hmm. And they know that that's going to sell. Um, you know, social media uh, people know that that's going to get retweets and 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 a bunch of hits. Um, and I think that sometimes people aren't as cognizant or considerate of how it might affect the people that they're sharing it with. Now, granted, I still believe it has to be shared because right. these stories need to be told. But I'm not really sure how we walk the fine line of, okay, one, I need to remain aware and I need to know what's going on. But two, I also need to protect my mental health. I've been, I've been struggling with that myself lately. Um, I've, I've, I've been practicing what a lot of people call like unplugging mm -hmm. and limiting my time on social media, limiting my time in group chats and stuff like that, because it can go on all day and all night. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you just have to ask yourself, how, you know, how is this making me feel? Because at first I was having a good day. Now I'm not having a good day because I saw someone of my group uh, being brutalized or being treated unfairly, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, that goes back to what I was talking about earlier about that added burden of stress related to racism specifically that other groups, well, whites in particular, don't necessarily have to endure the way we have to endure over the life course. I mean, you know, from, from the time we're aware, you know, as children to the time we die, you know, mm -hmm. we witness these things. And of course it has an effect on our, on our, on our well-being, on our mental health. And I think that it's important for us to remain vigilant, but it's also important for us to find a balance between, okay, you know, have I eaten today? Some of my friends haven't been eating. You know what I'm saying? Some of my friends haven't been taking care of themselves. I have to remind them to take care of themselves. And I, and I know that that is a direct result of them being vigilant around the clock, following these updates, and it's weighing on them. It's no question that it's weighing on them because they're human beings. Mm-hmm besides the this kind of like acute on chronic process that we're experiencing with these recent killings 
you know, right before uh, we heard about uh, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery's killings, uh, you know, we're in the thick of a pandemic that has been basically wreaking a vac in the Black community. Uh, and, uh, you know, as soon as data started being available related to mortality and mm -hmm. risk and whatnot, uh, the news coverage has been, you know, not primarily, but a lot of the media has been sort of covering the disparities that we are uh, witnessing in terms of, you know, like black people being basically twice as likely to die uh, of COVID-19. So one in like 1,850 black people have died compared to one in 4,400 white people. Um, and it's stressful, uh, you know, it, it, at least to me it is. Uh, and even, right, even before, the pandemic started as a black medical student, I, I, I just kind of knew, I was like, oh God, this is coming and it's going to just do us badly, right? Um, and it's been wearing on me and I'm just curious like what your thoughts are and, you know, related to the second, what, what secondhand racism feels like when it comes to just like a broader process, like Absolutely. witnessing the news coverage related to health disparities. Yeah, and, and I love that question because that's a lot more subtle, right? You know, mm -hmm. we, we're not necessarily seeing a video of someone being choked out, you know, uh, begging for their lives, right? We're seeing um, this, we're seeing this phenomenon where it's like, okay, there's a certain group that is always at risk, you know, whether it's negative cardiometabolic outcomes, you know, whether, um, you know, it's, people talking about homicides, whether it's, um, you know, COVID-19. I think that there is something to be said about the fact that we are always the ones who are at risk. And, and, and for me, that really weighed on me. Um, and it was almost kind of, it almost felt like we were being or going to be stigmatized. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the way that they were framing it is that, well, you know, this is, this is really, you know, harming the Black community. And it's just like, wow, like, why are we always the ones, you know, who are uh, facing the worst outcomes? And that's just a personal thing. But to me, as a researcher, what it really spoke to was, wow, look at how structural racism affects everything. Right. And, and as a researcher, but also a person, I was just like, wow, we really can't escape this thing. And yeah. that can feel, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, but I think you all know where I'm going with this, suffocating, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I think that there are multiple ways that, you know, racism and white supremacy can truly, you know, stymie hope, you know, a positive view of oneself. Luckily, Black Americans are very, very good, you know, uh, at, at, at keeping ourselves highly esteemed, you know, or at least, you know, in high regard. We've been socialized that way in a lot of um, um, environments. So, but without that, I don't know, you know, uh, I don't know how we would fare as far as well-being goes, because it's coming from every angle that we are going to have a poor fate. And um, I don't really know how to make that any plainer, but it's just, it can really, really weigh you down knowing that, man, you know, whether it's these other diseases that I've been hearing about, you know, my entire life, diabetes, um, you know, heart disease, or it's this new thing that's coming up. Oh man, that's going to get us too. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to process. You know that, okay, somebody in my family 
might get this and somebody might die. Well, for me, that actually happened. You know, I lost a cousin very early on, you know. Dang, I'm sorry, um, man. Yeah, I mean, it was hard on everybody. Um, and I think that, you know, when we were discussing before this, you know, you talked about your experiences with that. And I think that we're so close to it from so many different angles. And when I say it, I'm talking about poor outcomes um, mm -hmm. that it's almost like you're constantly looking over your shoulder, like, okay, man, what's the next thing going to be or what's, and, and that undoubtedly can impact our mental health and our well being every single day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, you know, uh, when the first kind of projections of, uh, of what the death toll might be like came out, I said, how many Facebook friends do you have? How many Facebook friends do I have? Um, you know, I feel like everyone has like a few thousands worth of Facebook friends right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you've been on Facebook since college yeah, like or whatever, right? Like two, three, four thousand, right? Right. So yeah. you think about one in at this point right now, it's like one in eighteen hundred black people, right? And I was like, you know, I mean, this is the aftermath. But initially, I was like, I feel like I'm just gonna know somebody, right? Like, yeah. it, it just, I was like, who is it gonna? You know, I just feel like, who is it gonna be? Who's going to get sick? you know, in my network, but also, you know, in my just general network, but even, I guess the double, at least for me, right, this double whammy of like, oh, I'm also in medical school, and like all my friends are in, the, not all, but like a whole bunch of my friends are working in the hospital, mm -hmm. mentors and whatnot. So uh, it's this sort of like secondhand stress uh, related to COVID-19 is something that I've been thinking a little bit about. Um, I'm curious. Uh, so I saw this paper um, that was uh, um, about the impact of just kind of, you know, police brutality at the state level, right, on Black people's mental health. So, mm -hmm. uh, and what's being discussed in the paper is basically um, the impact of, like, a one state, so being exposed to one state level police killing has this huge impact on, on, uh, on, on, on a Black person's mental health comparable to the impact of diabetes, mm -hmm. which seems massive. I'm curious, like, what your thoughts are in terms of, uh, you know, like, beyond police killings, right? Because police, events of police brutality, we only get to see a tiny slice of it. Uh, and it's the ones that get shot and die. But like, from my, from my understanding, most people who are victims of police brutality do not die, and they end up being actually disabled. Uh, by this so i'm curious what i guess yeah what your thoughts are on the larger and you know impact in terms of mental health beyond just police killings yeah well i mean so we know so just to talk about like say like the comparison that you made with like diabetes we know that stress can impact how somebody um you know takes care of themselves for instance mm -hmm. you know how you cope you know are you are you one, are you losing sleep? Or are you getting proper, adequate sleep? Um, and we know that Black Americans um, are less likely to get six hours or more, you know, than white Americans. Or you know, um, we also know that um, when it comes to health behaviors, um, are you coping with food that is healthy, or are you going for, you know, the stuff that is going to give you that instant gratification or mm. Um, you know, and for instance, we know black people are more likely to live in those areas where those options are more readily available uh, that are unhealthy, but can trigger, you know, or elicit those responses that can temporarily 
um, you know, relieve someone of stress. Um, but I think that, so to go back to the actual study, are you talking about the Bohr study? I don't remember. I know David Williams is one of the authors, Athene Van Katramani as well. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, the overall finding was that, um, and, and to be completely honest, I don't necessarily think that any of us find this to be a novel study. It's just, mm -hmm. like I was saying earlier, we didn't have evidence for it for whatever reason um, before this. And granted, there, there were some other studies out there that you could argue um, you know, found or, or, or examined this similar topic, but this one made it very, very plain. It was nationally representative group, right? Um, and essentially what they found was that seeing these, these, these killings of Black Americans or seeing this police brutality against Black Americans impacts our mental health in ways that it doesn't in, um, impact the mental health I think that's very significant and is another example of how racism related stress is an added burden of stress because again we all have stress white mm -hmm. people have stress too but they don't necessarily have stress related to racism mm -hmm. you know and that's an added burden that we have to deal with throughout the entire life course and after mm -hmm. a while that is going to impact your physical health right now i'm curious obviously white people do not have at least as far as we know uh, stress related to like material, you know, sort of like tangible racism. But um, there are some more recent studies that suggest that white people are increasingly reporting experiences of perceived discrimination um, on the basis of their race. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm wondering whether, what, I guess, yeah, what are the implications of that, right? Like, does that mean that are we going to move to recognizing the impact of discrimination on people's health more now that more white people are also reporting experiences of discrimination on the basis of race or? Well, I mean, one, we have to, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is their perceived racial discrimination rooted in? We know what ours is rooted in, centuries of systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. I would like to see, you know, where their centuries of systemic oppression, you know, happened, you know? I, I would like to see it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you as sound Monique like Monique. Said, <laughs> of course, as Monique said, I would like to see it. You know, it has a different, it has a different weight, man. It hits different. So anyone can claim that, oh, you know, this person, you know, was prejudiced against me. Cause that's really what it is. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just bias. Of course, we all have biases. But when we talk about racism, there, there, um, there are roots there, you know, there are structural um, well, better yet, they're institutional, cultural, and interpersonal, um, you know, things that we can highlight to show how someone being called a racial epithet, for instance, or being treated poorly, you know, um, at a restaurant or something like that um, can make a person feel, even though it sounds, um, you know, that was just, they were just being, no, 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 no. I'm feeling a way about this because of what my people went through and because of previous experiences that I've had in the institutional, cultural, uh, um, overall structural realms. I would mm -hmm. like to see that for white people. And, and if they can argue that, then I think we can have that discussion. But until then, I'm not really sure, you know, what, what, what grounds, 
you know, their, their, their experiences, you know, are found in because um, as far as I know, uh, they've been the majority, they've had um, all their rights and privileges, uh, they've had benefits. Um, <laughs> and, you know, these are all things that we don't have or haven't had. Our ancestors didn't have, my grandmother didn't have, her grandmother didn't have. I mean, we can talk about generation after generation after generation in this country. So mm -hmm. that's my issue with that type of, um, I don't want to say research because research can be good, but um, I don't really know what we have to gain from from those from those findings or really even what what legs they stand on. I see. Uh, so something that's going on right now, and you, you, you maybe you're not experiencing this because you're not in grad school anymore, is with mm -hmm. this you know outpour of support um, for Black Lives Matter and all this kind of like renewed uh, mm -hmm. commitment that institutions are putting out there. Um, a lot of places, workplaces are having these kind of town halls. So for instance, the New York Times um, published this Tom Cotton um, op-ed, and then you know, this whole story sort of turned into them having a town hall discussing, you know, like what is the benefit of having a senator publish basically, uh, you know, a totally fascist op-ed. Uh, in other settings, like in university settings, um, your diversity and inclusion office might be hosting a town hall. And so, you know, I saw some black medical students who were saying, yeah, I just got off this three hour town hall where people listen to my pain and listen to the things that I'm experiencing, this, that, and the third. Uh, I went to one of those myself as a, you know, as a black medical student. And I was just like, I don't care for the emails, keep the emails. I want to see the structural changes. But some people did express their pain and how tired they were. And I, uh, my question here is, you know, knowing what you know, what is the value of these town halls where people get together and basically kind of share their trauma? Like, are we just, tra like, are we just kind of like traumatizing each other in the town hall? Um, if it's just us in the town hall, uh, and then like, what does it look like when we're, the town hall is happening in, in mixed company? Uh, is there a greater benefit because then they hear it and they listen more? Uh, because personally, my, my, you know, when, when it started, when we started getting the emails, I told my friends, I was like, I don't care for a town hall. I talk to y'all every day, but they're happening. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, um, great question. I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with, um, you know, I've, I've been doing town halls since I, you know, was in high school. Um, but I did my last one. Um, and I probably won't do another one again, but I did my last one back in, I believe it was 2015 or 2016. I was working with the uh, Black Graduate and Professional Student Association at UK. Uh, this was during the uprising, you know, around the entire country. Shout out to Mizzou, you know, for, you know, helping lead the charge. Uh, but it was happening on campuses all around the country. And um, I was fortunate enough, you know, to get the opportunity uh, to speak uh, you know, f to a full auditorium of folks. You know, we had a very organized program. It was, it was, it was dope, man. We had slides, we had facts, we had statistics, we had quotes. I, you know, I, I stuck it to the administration, you know, cause they were, they were all sitting right there. And of course the crowds of people were behind them and, you know, uh, we made our voices heard and, um, the president didn't even come, you know, he didn't show up, um, which, that doesn't have necessarily as much to do with what I'm about to say, but 
I just want to point that out. The president of UK did not come to our town hall. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's exactly what you said. People come, they, they, they share their feelings, they share their experiences for hours, and we listen to it. And we're all hurt because we've experienced the same thing. And then we all go home and I'm just exhausted. And I don't always see the change that I thought I was going to see. So I no longer care about, and, and I'm trying to be very diplomatic about how I say this, that's why I'm struggling, but I, I don't, I'm like you, I don't care for town halls um, because again, you know, and I'll keep saying this, I don't wanna see apologies. I wanna see, you know, people no longer having a reason to apologize because they didn't do anything, you know, to harm black people. That's when I'll know that we're making progress. I don't see companies coming out because now every company, oh, we stand with, you know, the black community and da da da. That's nice and all, but I really would just like to not have to even do this anymore because, you know, nobody got murdered. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the real change. That's where the change needs to happen. Not, you know, people just acknowledging that racism. We know it exists. We just waiting on y'all. I mean, <laughs> we know that it exists. Right. You know, people now are coming out and, you know, apologizing to Colin Kaepernick. And it's like, well, guys, I mean, you know, we were beating that horse for a long time and y'all didn't listen. I don't even care anymore that you, well, I mean, okay, I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for all black people, but mm -hmm. I don't care as much anymore to have people just acknowledge it at this point. I wanted that as a younger black man. I'm like, acknowledge my pain, like acknowledge my struggle, acknowledge what you've done wrong. I'm trying to get to the point where you're not doing anything wrong anymore. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's, to me, that's the marker of progress. And until we get there, I, you know, I'm with you. I don't necessarily care to go to a place where all we're going to do is talk about our pain because we have a lot of it. So we're going to be there all night and we're going to be in our feelings all night. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be, I'm going to be hurt when I hear these stories because I have stories of my own, but I don't know that that is going to solve the problem, you know? Right. Um, and I feel like it's not necessarily our job to have to go through all of that just so people um, can be educated. You know, at this, at this point, you know, Google is still free. Plenty of folks have documented their experiences. Go learn, you know, go read. I mean, even if you are one of those people who loves, you know, Dr. King and he's, he's the mascot for racial, okay, read, but, but, but read, you know, letter from Birmingham jail. You know what I'm saying? Start there. I'm sorry, I'm in Birmingham right now, so I, I, I'm feeling it, but, but, but read that one. You know what I'm saying? Read what he said about white liberals. You know what I'm saying? Like, start there, you know, if, if Dr. King is your guy. And I love Dr. King. He's a great example, Morehouse alum. I love him. But uh, oftentimes when people use him for every single example, I'm like, okay, one, you don't even know Dr. King because you're using his work incorrectly. But mm -hmm. two, he's not the only one, you know? Right. There's a woman by the name of Fannie Lou Hamer. Mm -hmm. You know, you got Ida B. Wells. You got to do boy. You, like it's there are other folks mm -hmm. and they have other stories, but they're also echoing a lot of the same sentiments. And I think that people, if they just did the education as 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 our former um uh, it's just weird to say brother, but Kanye uh said in that one interview, you haven't done the education. So 
honestly, some people just need to read. Like, it's just really not that difficult. It's very accessible. Read the stories so we don't have to keep reliving our trauma just so you can acknowledge what we already know, which is that racism is bad. Right. Um, so should, so really what I'm curious, you know, within our, con, you know, so the Black Graduate Students Association or even SNMA, like notwithstanding whatever the rest of the university is doing, should we even bother be laboring? Because this is something that I've been asking myself, right? Like, why do I bother? Why, why am I helping craft an email right now to President Insert name. Extra right, like work. I, right. So I started to think, is this like us getting together or in our group chat or Zoom or whatever and retelling these experiences because this acute moment is kind of triggering us? Um, it sounds like based on the impact that secondhand racism has on our on our psyche, it isn't worth it. it that, is that what, it, what you would say or... I mean, I, so I'm still working through that, you know, as an individual, um, as a young man, as a young black man, I'm still, I'm still working through that because we do have a part to play, I believe. Um, yeah. But as you know, at some point you have to say, you know, am I doing, am I overworking myself essentially? Mm -hmm. Because that's work. Like people don't understand, like even going back to my town hall example, I sacrificed like weeks, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, like of working on that when I could have been doing other very, very meaningful graduate work mm -hmm. just because I had to affirm the fact, you know, that, hey, black folks aren't being treated the way we should be treated by our institutions, you know, that, you know, that we're, you know, getting our degrees at. And the president didn't even show up. Like, I'm sorry, that's still, that's still a sore spot. For no, me. I feel that. I feel you know, right. but, but, but I sacrificed hours. I sacrificed emotions. Like it was draining just having to put all that stuff on the slide because it's real experiences to me. It's not something I read, right? you know? Like we do have, or they, cause I'm no longer a UK student. They do have a mural of slaves in Memorial Hall. You mm -hmm. know, it was all in newspapers and stuff like that. And they did refuse to take it down. You know, like that's, I don't want to talk about that all day. Right. You know, I wish I didn't have to think about it. I wish mm -hmm. it didn't exist. You right. see where I'm going Same. with this? Mm -hmm. But so here we are. Here we are. And, 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 and I think at some point, as individuals, we have to decide what we're, what we're able to do, what we have the capacity to do. Me, I had to make some very tough decisions. I decided that I was going to, instead of putting that emotional, psychological labor, you know, into affirming, you know, my humanity all the time for people who might not even show up, um, I'm going to put all that energy into my work because my work is the work, you know, mm -hmm. my research is racism and health. I consider myself to be an okay researcher. I feel like I could do something with research. So I put my energy there because I felt like that, that was where it was best spent. Now, other folks may feel differently and that's cool. I'm not mad at that, but I think it's an individual thing. Me, I, I, I felt defeated, we'll say, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't say that too often, but I, but that was a defeating moment for me and I didn't quite bounce back from that. Um, so um, yeah, I don't do town halls, long story short. I feel that. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the pod. Thank uh, you. I really appreciate it. We've been talking about this for months now. Uh, yeah, man. I, I wish it was under better circumstances, but the time is kind of fitting given your research. Yeah, man, thank you for creating this space. 
Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.